Even though I now live in the Pacific Northwest, I still try to visit Walden Pond at least once a year. And when I do, I make a point of hiking to the site of Henry David Thoreau's cabin there. On one occasion a few years ago, I saw a middle-aged man sitting quietly on the cairn, a pile of stones near where the cabin once stood. I asked him what brought him there. He said Walden changed his life. He had spent over 20 years in prison for various offenses, he said, including theft and drug possession. He had a teacher in prison once who taught a class on literature, including Thoreau's Walden. The teacher brought the class to visit Walden Pond on an outing. The book and that visit changed his life. Believing, as Thoreau wrote, there is more day to dawn, he straightened out his life. Now he was clean, he was married, and he had a good job. He had come back to the pond to reflect on his life and the new course it had taken. I've been reading, reflecting on, speaking and writing about the transcendentalists for most of my career as a minister. I'm often asked what fires my passion, and this passage from Walden comes most readily to mind. There are probably words addressed to our condition exactly, which, if we could really hear and understand, would be more salutary than the morning or the spring to our lives, and possibly put a new aspect on the face of things for us. These same questions that disturb and puzzle and confound us have, in their turn, occurred to all the wise men. Not one has been omitted, and each has answered them according to his ability by his words and his life. What Thor was saying in his 19th century way is that humans have always struggled with life's fundamental questions. Why do we live and die? What are we here for? How should we live? If we seek out the wise thinkers of the past, we are sure to find answers that will inspire us to live more healthfully and joyfully today. That is how I've experienced the words and lives of the transcendentalists. I view them as living voices whose writing is addressed as much today as it was in their time to spiritual seekers and religious radicals like themselves, restless souls, as religious historian Lee Eric Schmidt describes them. The transcendentalists were, in fact, the forerunners of what Schmidt calls the spiritual left in America. While often viewed as a literary movement, transcendentalism is best described as a religious or spiritual one. It began as a religious revolt within American Unitarianism sparked to a great extent by Emerson's famous address to the graduates of Harvard Divinity School in 1837. Virtually all of the transcendentalists were Unitarians, many of them ministers or former ministers. They thought of their lectures and essays as a kind of modern-day scripture, not as accepted truths, but as a record of each writer's spiritual experience. They believed, as Emerson did, that what is true for us in our most elevated moments might also be universally true. To believe your own thought, to believe that 
what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. Uh, that is genius. Their writing is a form of wisdom literature, similar to that of other philosophers and religious figures who wrote about their own experiences in their own time. Their thought has widely influenced American culture today. Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience guided the actions of Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and many of today's social activists. His reverence for and observations of nature gave rise to the environmental movement and continued to inspire efforts to combat climate change and species extinction. Emerson's insistence in his Divinity School address that religious truth is grounded in personal experience influenced the thinking of William James and succeeding generations of spiritual seekers. Margaret Fuller's book, Woman in the 19th Century, sparked a feminist movement that continues to have a profound impact on American society. Although the transcendentalists were Unitarians, sadly there is little awareness in contemporary Unitarian Universalist churches of the extent to which they influenced the historical development of our worship and theology. Historian David Robinson observes, like a pauper who searches for the next meal, never knowing of the relatives whose will would make him rich, American Unitarians lament their vague religious identity standing upon the richest theological legacy of any American denomination. Possessed of a deep and sustaining history of spiritual achievement and philosophical speculation, religious liberals have been ironically dispossessed of that heritage. Today, many Americans are experiencing a hunger for an inner life of greater richness and depth, abandoning the exclusive claims and moral correctness of conservative Christianity in search of new sources of inspiration. Many have found that wisdom in other seemingly more spiritual traditions, such as Buddhism, Vedanta, and Sufism. The transcendentalists were actually the first generation of Americans to look for spiritual inspiration in faith traditions outside their own, clearing the path for future seekers. Today's restless souls, I believe, will discover hidden treasures in transcendentalism, a uniquely and authentically American form of spirituality. We live in a transition period, Emerson observed. The stern old faiths have all pulverized. Tis a whole population of gentlemen and ladies out in search of religions. <clears throat> in his view, this spiritual hunger could no longer be satisfied by adhering to church doctrine and discipline, but only by embracing a wider spirituality. God, he said, builds his temple in the heart on the ruins of churches and religions. Although the transcendentalists introduced the distinction between religion and spirituality, their quarrel was not with churches and religions per se, but with the theological and social conservatism of Christian churches of their day, Unitarian churches included. Some traded their pulpits for a podium on the lecture circuit. Others remained in the ministry reforming worship and congregational life. The remedy for a decaying church Emerson famously declared in his Divinity School Address 
is first soul and second soul and evermore soul. The soul and its cultivation were the primary preoccupations of the transcendentalists in everything they said and did, from the pursuit of self-reliance to social reform. Self-culture was the defining characteristic of the age, a term widely used to refer to education and self-improvement. It took on special meaning for the transcendentalists. They believed, as Emerson put it, that every man should be open to ecstasy or divine illumination and his daily walk elevated by intercourse with the spiritual world. They experienced such ecstasies themselves and considered them to be the spiritual high watermarks of their lives. They sought ways of cultivating such experiences and incorporating insights gained through them into the texture of their everyday lives. Self-culture, as they understood it, was a form of spiritual practice intended to accomplish these aims. But the work of self-culture did not end with the individual. The self in question was not the isolated individual ego, but rather the human soul in its relation to the universal mind, or as Emerson termed it, the oversoul. Their notion of self-culture thus links mysticism and social action. The belief that human beings are interconnected with one another and with all of nature led its adherents into the world more often than away from it, insists Emerson biographer Robert D. Richardson. The transcendentalists were not radical individualists aloof from politics and society, as is sometimes alleged, but rather were more activist than many of their Unitarian and Trinitarian opponents. According to Richardson, they found that the ethical consequences of transcendental idealism impelled them into social, political, educational, and religious reform. They fervently believed that individual transformation necessarily resulted in social change and that reform was ineffective without it. The transcendentalists pursued a wide variety of avenues and interests. Collectively, however, they adhered to a common set of spiritual principles. Their spirituality was very much in this world, characterized by a reverence for nature, an organic worldview, a sense of the miraculous in everyday life, an optimism about human potential, a search for what is universal in religion and human experience, a strong moral conscience, and an encouragement of the individual in her or his own religious quest. Their practices to achieve self-culture, some formal, others informal, all aim to transform both self and society. Starting as a religious revolt, transcendentalism soon became a broad-based reform movement as members of the group sought to realize the ethical implications of their philosophical idealism. Because they believed the religious impulse was innate and universal, they looked for common elements in the world's spiritual traditions, embracing an unprecedented religious cosmopolitanism. The old faiths that have comforted nations seem to have spent their force, Emerson observed. Yet in the face of skepticism and religious decline, 
He continued to believe that the religious sentiment was an essential aspect of human nature and that the answer to a bad religion is a better one through the cultivation of the soul. There is always some religion, he said, some hope and fear extending into the invisible from the blind boating which nails a horseshoe to the mast or the threshold up to the song of the elders in the apocalypse. But religion cannot rise above the state of the votary. The important question is, what are the means by which the votary or the would-be follower is elevated? The transcendentalists sought to elevate the votary by means of a discipline that included solitude, contemplation, walks in nature, simplicity, reading, conversation, and journal keeping. They pursued these practices not for health or financial reward, but for self-culture or the cultivation of the soul. Self-culture is as important today as ever and is as authentic and rewarding as any other form of spiritual practice. Many of the restless souls who have attended my classes over the years have been surprised to discover that the spiritual practices they were looking for were ones that they already followed, albeit in an informal way. We often think of spiritual disciplines as requiring devoted practice, daily prayer, meditation, yoga, and the like. Many of these ancient religious practices were developed to focus the mind, purify the body, and transcend the ego with the goal of achieving enlightenment and peace of mind. In comparison, the transcendentalist spiritual practices might seem quite tame. They weren't monks, yogis, or ascetics. They probably did not even view their practices as an explicitly spiritual regime. Yet self-culture, I believe, is indeed a religious practice that required dedication and resulted in transcendence, much like any other. The exercises they engaged in are quite simple and common, walking, reading, musing, conversing, and they are mostly free and can be performed at any time. But as a spiritual practice, they are not necessarily easy. As Frederick Hedge, one of the original members of the Transcendental Club, wrote in his essay on the art of life, the work is hard and the wages are low. The only motive to engage in this work is its own inherent worth, much that other men esteem as highest and follow after as a grand reality, he will have to forego. No emoluments must seduce him from the rigor of his devotion. No engagements beyond the merest necessities of life must interfere with his pursuit. A meager economy must be his income. Self-culture is above all a way of life that is both attained and maintained by means of these spiritual exercises. Pierre Hadot, a French historian of philosophy, defines spiritual exercises as voluntary personal practices meant to bring about a transformation of the individual, a transformation of the self. Emerson said that none of the transcendentalists lived a purely spiritual life, but they were harbingers and forerunners. They were ministers and morally instructive writers calling their audiences to embrace a different, a new and different way of life. Though I can't claim to have lived a purely spiritual life myself, I continue to find insight and inspiration in their example 
and their teachings. They have guided my ministry, my writing, and my outlook on life. In my book, Transcendentalism and the Cultivation of the Soul, I have sought to retrieve their message and reclaim its value for spiritual seekers today.